think the main thing is that patients actually, when they first meet us, have no idea what's hit them. They don't understand a lot of what's just been said to them. It does get better. Just stay positive. No, do your absolute best to get through this. There are certainly lots of different medications that can help so that we get you through treatment with as minimal side effects as possible. That's the aim of the treatment. Let somebody on the team know if you're having any problems at all. The earlier we can address any issues that come up, the better we can tackle it. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Beyond 5 Head and Neck Cancer podcast series. Beyond 5 is the face of head and neck cancer in Australia. And in this episode, we're talking about living with head and neck cancer and the experience of diagnosis, treatment and recovery. And to find out all about it, we're talking to Lisa Wilson, a cancer nurse specialist, and Julie Saunders, a cancer nurse coordinator, who work all the time in Perth uh, with people who are experiencing head and neck cancer. Welcome to you both, and thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you very much, Julie. When you first meet patients, can you just give us a brief sense of uh, what are the most common concerns that they have? What do they raise with you? I think the main thing is that patients actually, when they first meet us, have no idea what's hit them. They don't understand a lot of what's just been said to them by the clinician. They're in shock from the diagnosis, even though they might have had a bit of an idea that something was amiss and it could be quite serious. Until they're actually told that, I think they're probably hoping that everything is going to be all right and that it's not a cancer diagnosis. So when they come to us, they're in shock, as are their family members. They've probably not taken in very much of what the doctor has said at all. And as we all know, quite often in clinics, doctors don't have a huge amount of time, not as long as they would like, to spend with patients. So usually we will see a patient straight after the doctor has seen them, if we can, And we are able, luckily, to be able to spend a fair bit of time with the patient and family as much as they need to go over things, reassure them, give them more information, education about any tests that they might need or um, the disease itself or the treatment itself. And of course, uh, you're part of what's often called a multidisciplinary team. Explain who makes up the team of people who help head and neck cancer patients and, and why we need a team. Yeah, I think the multidisciplinary team are people that we work with very closely, particularly in head and neck cancer. If we think that the types of areas where the head and neck cancers are, they're they're quite essential for everyday things such as speaking, eating, breathing. Um, So it's important that we have all those people that can know about these areas and provide the best possible care to look more longer term after treatment that patients can return to hopefully some sort of uh, normality and getting back into to life in, um, after head and neck cancer. The, the people in the team which who, who are particularly essential are, yes, the, the medical side of things, but the allied health side um, with head and neck cancer, and that's people like the speech pathologist and dietitian who, who really are key figures with um, getting patients through this treatment, monitoring their speech and their swallow, their diet and the, you know, any weight loss that they might have. Um, and, and alongside that, there's obviously myself and Julie who are 
are very important as well, um, who are there in the background to work across all these disciplines and, and hopefully try and pull it all together for that patient that we're dealing with. And dentists play a role, don't they, before, during and after treatment. Uh, we'll come to it in more detail later, but just in a nutshell, what, why are dentists so important? Yeah, so dentists are crucial in uh, seeing the majority of our patients prior to commencement of radiotherapy. And that's because the radiotherapy side effects can affect the teeth Um Really, we're looking at after treatments completed and in the long term. So we like patients to get a good checkup from an experienced dentist who really knows about head and neck cancer treatments. And they will give them a clean, a polish, a scale. And they they may well recommend that some dental work is carried out prior to commencement of treatment. They will monitor patients usually during treatment if necessary, but most importantly is after treatment, once treatment's finished and for years down the track. They will they will really make sure that patients are educated on the health of their teeth from commencement of treatment onwards. Uh, because uh, we've focused so far mostly on the allied health team and nursing because you're so critical uh, for head and neck cancer patients, I'll, I'll just quickly mention there's three main kinds of doctors, aren't there? There's the chemotherapist, the surgeon and the radiation oncologist. And it, it the role of uh, radiation in affecting saliva can mean teeth can be at risk. So if you are having radiation, sometimes you might have some extractions even before before you start. Yes, that's that's very true. And unfortunately, some of our patients do have to have a considerable number of extractions. But, you know, we have to do that to make sure that there's a minimum of side effects in the long term so that we can maintain a healthy mouth um, once treatment's finished and for those years ahead. Look, thank you. And uh, if you're You've just joined us and you're listening. We're talking about head and neck cancer as part of the Beyond Five Head and Neck Cancer podcast series. And I'm talking to Lisa Wilson, a cancer nurse specialist, and Julie Saunders, a cancer nurse coordinator, both who work with people with head and neck cancer uh, based in Perth. And if you'd like more information about head and neck cancer, you can go to the Beyond Five website, www.beyond5.org.au, where you'll find patients videos, 3D animations that'll show you where the cancer is and how it's treated. And there's also answers to all your questions uh, about head and neck cancer. Well, look, let's go on to the question of side effects. Uh, who'd like to kick off if you perhaps you might want to start in relation to surgery and then we'll turn to radiation therapy. What are some of the key side effects that patients face and how can we help them? Yep, that's fine. I'll mention a little bit about surgery and, and obviously I mentioned earlier that um, head and neck cancers, they can be in a, a variety of different sites within the head and neck area. So the surgery would be, dis- it, the side effects that you get from that would be depend on the type of surgery you have and possibly where the cancer um, is in, in the first place. The, the main things that we see in general terms following surgery are um difficulties with with speech and with swallowing um, that might need some allied health input and do take a a period of time to recover. Sometimes that can never return completely back to normal, but the the focus of surgery is to, to get rid of the cancer 
primarily, but then leave the patient with the best possible outcome and quality of life following that surgery. Is there anything else about surgery you'd like to talk about? Yes, um, I would just like to mention that for some patients during the time of surgery, they may be required to have what's called a tracheostomy, which is basically um, a hole is made, an incision is made in the neck area, and that goes straight through to the uh, breathing pipe. And that's so that patients can breathe easily once the surgery is just completed and for a couple of weeks afterwards. Now, that may be a temporary thing or it may come out just a couple of weeks after surgery. Alternatively, it may carry on and stay in place if the patient's having further treatments such as chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and it may come out after that. And and sometimes, in a few circumstances, it may be that the tracheostomy is in long term. Um, But patients do get a lot of help with that from the nursing staff on the ward and from our speech pathologists. As I know from meeting people who've had to keep a tracheostomy, you can learn to speak using it. So it doesn't necessarily mean you lose the capacity to speak for the rest of your life. No, no, you're you're quite right. That's true. Well, let's turn to uh, radiation therapy. And can you give us a sense of uh, some of the key side effects there? And then we'll talk about what we can do to sort of help with them. Yeah, we we can talk a little bit about radiotherapy. The types of side effects that patients will experience with radiotherapy are things like a reaction in the skin to the area where the radiotherapy has been given. This doesn't start straight away, maybe a couple of weeks into treatment, but it will progressively get worse before it actually starts getting better. So we try and tell patients that if they're experiencing problems early on to be talking to the team that are treating them so things can be done to to combat that and, and reduce those side effects. I think with the radiotherapy as well, one thing that patients experience an awful lot is fatigue. And again, that fatigue starts a couple of weeks or so into treatment. I think longer term as well, we've sort of touched a little bit on the dry mouth, but uh, the the lack of saliva, the fact that it will never return to how it was before the treatment thing that the patients have to receive education for and deal with afterwards. I'd also like to just add, Julie, that um, mucositis or mouth ulcers is a very, very common problem for patients having radiotherapy. Um, The mouth can get very sore during treatment and, as Lisa's already said, for a couple of weeks after treatment has finished, it does get better. It is a short-term side effect that only happens whilst treatment is current and long-term that would disappear completely. However, it's very painful. But rest assured, you need to communicate with your medical team, with the treating radiation oncologist, and there are certainly lots of different medications, painkillers that can help with that side effect so that we get you through treatment with as minimal side effects as possible. That's the aim of the treatment, really. As I I listen to you, I'm very aware some people will be listening to this who are about to begin uh, radiation treatment or perhaps surgery and then later radiation treatment or or family members and I want to 
reassure them. I am someone who's had uh, 30 days of radiation treatment for uh, stage four head and neck cancer just over five and a half years ago. And uh, the nursing and medical team gave me assistance throughout so that I did not experience pain. It was a mixture of spray-on pain relief, uh, various ways of keeping my mouth clean, uh, medications to take to give pain relief. So while there's no question that head and neck cancer treatment is a is a rigorous experience, the whole team don't they work to keep us uh, pain-free and and to get through it holding hands with you. I think that's right. That's right, Julie. And I think it's just important to say you mentioned that you'd had the 30 treatments and, th- and that runs, you know, day after day with weekends off usually. And so it's important for patients to remember that, that if they are having this treatment and they are starting to experience these side effects, you go in into hospital every day. You probably won't see the doctor every day, but there are radiation staff, there are nurses, is there that you can communicate these problems to so that they can be addressed early and hopefully get on top of quite quickly, you know, to make that treatment more bearable and you to get through it more easily. And the impact on the salivary glands of radiation therapy, it basically makes your mouth go dry. And my understanding is, I'm obviously keen to hear what you say, is that for most of us, slowly but surely, we get back some saliva. It may not be the same as before, but it predominantly comes back. Yes, that's true. And Alicia and myself will often recognise our patients because they're usually carrying a water bottle with them, which they sip from during treatment and after treatment. And um, you're absolutely right. The dry mouth is a problem for patients. It's not very pleasant, but frequent sips of water, you can buy also an artificial saliva product, which may help. Lots of the nursing staff in the radiation department will be able to give advice about the different methods that patients find um, helpful because it is different for every individual. That's right. We haven't mentioned taste and sometimes difficulty opening the mouth. Could you just speak briefly to that? Um, yeah, the, the taste can certainly be uh, affected during treatment. Um, it may be that that things that a person enjoyed before they they suddenly don't like the taste of, or they can't col- can't tolerate that taste. Particularly with things that perhaps are, are a little bit spicier than than you know, if you like chili or things like that, it cannot be um, as easy to to eat at that time. Um, again, you mentioned about. The, the mouth opening if somebody's had surgery or even with the radiotherapy if they they do have some mouth restriction there are certain foods that they may not be able to uh, manipulate in the mouth as well as they perhaps could before treatment um, the speech pathologist can certainly again help with some exercises regarding that and that therapy would be ongoing after uh, treatment as well And just in a nutshell, what will we say about chemotherapy? Because uh, sometimes radiation therapy is combined with chemotherapy. In a nutshell, what's the key side effect to watch out for there? Yep, so the main side effect from the chemotherapy is really nausea, um, 
occasionally vomiting, but not very often because, again, what we aim to do is control all the side effects really before they start. And so medication will be given with the chemotherapy and also after the chemotherapy for a good couple of days to a week to combat any nausea feelings. And there's lots of different types of anti-nausea medication that we can give. So if you're given one and it doesn't seem to be working very well, as we keep on saying, the patient really does need to talk to the team who will be very helpful in prescribing a different type of medication that will help with that. Um, Fatigue, I think, is the other main problem with chemotherapy. Patients do feel very fatigued. And of course, that combined with the radiotherapy, um, it's it's almost a double dose of fatigue. Look, let's turn now to tips during and after treatment to to assist us with the side effects. And let's go to mouth care. So just in a nutshell, what are the critical things to do to look after your mouth uh, during treatment for uh, head and neck cancer? Um, yeah, it, it is essential to, to have a good um, mouth care regime during and after treatment. Now that if, if the patient has seen the dentist, they, they should have gone through that and, and explained how to clean the teeth properly, uh, regularly mouth washes you know cleaning the your teeth after you've eaten um and, and keeping an eye on things making sure that there's no problems any any wounds or or changes in the skin any ulcers seeking prompt advice if there are any changes in the mouth and and I should say you hand out sheets of paper with information on it to people I'm sure don't you as well as people being able to go to the beyond five website you you get helped along the way with what you need to know yes most definitely and and we do point people out um, that they should go and look at the Beyond 5 website as well for for further information. But yeah, we do give our own leaflets out. And as does the dentist that we work with, they also have their own information sheets. If I could say as a a former head and neck cancer patient, I learnt that there was a high strength fluoride toothpaste that you can ask for at the chemist. It's usually not on display. You have to ask the chemist to get it from out the back. And and they also have mouthwash that is completely alcohol free, uh, which is important because our mouths are so sensitive. And, And I was also advised to use like a children's soft brush, like, and I still... Uh, even though I'm 64, use a, a toothbrush designed for a four-year-old because they're small and they're soft. Yeah, they're, they're all tips that we would give to our patients as well. They're they're very important tips, though, and I think they do make a very big difference. And even sometimes the soft toothbrush is, um, you know, quite quite. When when your mouth is very sensitive, even as just a soft toothbrush will will be quite irritable. So yeah, definitely a soft toothbrush for for probably the rest of your life following treatment. It perhaps could be advisable to reduce sugar and acidic food, not just during your treatment, but even for the rest of your life. Just keeping your mouth as healthy as you possibly can. Um, water is by far the best. Just plain water. You can always put a, a very small amount of a sugar-free type cordial in if you really can't bear the taste of water because I appreciate it gets a bit boring just drinking water all the time but certainly yeah reduce all your high sugar foods even ice cream I think you can get a a low sugar or non-sugar version of that so the dentist will be crucial in advising patients with that information. 
Well, look, let's turn to the all-important nutrition. And uh, because of the issues to do with the soreness of the mouth and the swallowing, weight loss is a, is a major challenge, isn't it, for many head and neck cancer patients. What are the sort of uh, tips that you and the, the, the dietitian are giving uh, to head and neck cancer patients so that they can try to maintain their weight? Yeah, you quite rightly mentioned the dietitian and the importance of their role within all this. But the types of things that we would be telling patients is to perhaps maybe eat uh, smaller meals, but perhaps more often. So rather than just having, you know, two uh, larger meals a day, splitting that up into smaller meals every couple of hours. If you're not able to tolerate that, then maybe trying to have a snack or something in between meals as well. I know that during my treatment, uh, they delivered to my house uh, boxes of this enriched um, liquid food uh, because for quite some part of my treatment, I could only take liquids uh, and uh, I would put ice in it and spend quite a lot of time getting down large quantities of very rich liquid food. Is is that something that, that, that uh, you would talk to people about? Yes, so certainly in conjunction with the dietitian, the, um, there's a range of supplement drinks that can be offered for patients and not just milk-based ones because some patients actually find it quite difficult to tolerate the milk-based ones because of the taste changes as well. Nothing tastes quite right. So there are fruit juice-based um, flavoured ones, which I think some patients do prefer, especially in a hot summer in WA, um, where, where the fruity drinks might be preferable. But certainly they are um, special supplement drinks um, with high calories in. And, and if patients go through a period of time where they find they really can't take soft diet, then these supplement drinks are very important. Another thing that we see patients have a lot of is uh, things like smoothies, whether that be fruit smoothies or, you know, vegetable juice drinks. So, And that's something that they can do at home with the sorts of fruits or vegetables that they enjoy. Um, a lot of patients we find will have a, a blender and, and use those if they're not able to, to manage a, you know, a, a full meal that they can eat. It's certainly a major issue for head and neck cancer patients to maintain a healthy weight because many of us do lose weight during treatment. Uh, we won't go into it in detail, but some patients will uh, need to be fed by a tube uh, inserted into their stomach or, or a nasogastric tube, a tube down the nose. What's your basic message about tube feeding? Yeah, look, um, we know that patients don't particularly like the tube and uh, certainly there's always um, risks involved with any surgery and so some patients don't like the thought of having the surgery to have the tube inserted into the stomach initially but I think on the other hand some patients also are just so relieved that they don't have to take every or rely on taking in food orally through their mouth that they can finally get get nutrition through the tube that in actual fact sometimes it's quite patients are quite relieved in the end to get the tube we would certainly aim for that tube to come out as soon as possible following treatment once the weight starts to come back up and patients are able to tolerate a um, more normal oral diet so it's something that is 
sometimes necessary, not particularly favoured by patients or the thought of it, but it has to happen and it's beneficial and we get get rid of it as soon as possible. The nasogastric tube, so the tube that goes down through the nose, it's the same or similar to having a nasoendoscopy, which most patients will have had during their diagnosis time. If I could just explain, that's a bendable, flexible tube that goes down through your nose with a little bit of local anesthesia with a camera on it and it enables the doctor to check what's happening down in the lower part of the throat. Exactly. And so it's very similar to to having that nasoendoscopy tube put down. And as I say, most patients will have had one of those during their workup for the diagnosis. So again, the, the nasogastric tube or patients may hear of it referred to as an NG tube. Again, it's temporary. It's down there just to help get enough nutrition in to maintain weight, to put on a bit of weight once treatment's finished, and again, we'll come out as soon as possible because we really prefer for patients to be taking in their nutrition orally. We want patients to keep swallowing, to use those muscles because we don't want to our bodies to forget how to swallow and unless the muscles are used all the time, then that, that's always a risk. Uh, well, this brings us uh, very readily to speech and swallowing and the, the incredible role of the speech pathologist. As, as a former patient, uh, I think speech pathologists are one of my dearest friends. Just explain their role and, and how they help us when we're having treatment for head and neck cancer. Um, yeah, the, the speech pathologist would be ideally there from, from diagnosis as well, a little bit like us, assessing the patient, seeing what um, problems they are perhaps experiencing because they've noticed a lump or a change in the mouth and and they, it might be that the patient has already changed their diet to accommodate this um uh, symptoms that they're experiencing so the speech pathologist is essential to from day one really and then what should happen is that speech pathologist follows the patient through whatever treatment they they are having sees them periodically periodically to make sure that they are uh, always assessed on an individual basis as to what the patient needs and what the speech pathologist can offer uh, to them to to improve quality of life. If I could just offer a comment, as a, a former patient, I, I lost my voice completely for about three months. And I, I think vo- loss of voice is not uncommon in these different uh, treatment side effects. Uh, but uh, as people can hear, it's come back. But I did work closely with a speech pathologist for 18 months after treatment. So uh, th- they can be a big psychological support as well, which actually takes me to psychology. How would you sum up the, the emotional impact of this treatment that we've been discussing and how can you help there? Yeah, so I think for patients um, and carers, family, friends alike, it's a, a difficult journey. Um, so from diagnosis, patients and family are in shock. they completely overwhelmed with all the information. Then, of course, it's um, attending all the myriad of appointments to see the whole multidisciplinary team. So that might involve the surgeon, the chemotherapy doctor, the radiotherapy doctor, the speech pathologist, the dietitian, myself, and maybe a social worker and other uh, healthcare workers in between. So myriad of appointments, coming into a hospital that's new, confusing, never been in hospital before, completely overwhelming and really 
can be not a very nice experience. So I think for patients, if they can get as much information from their team, that's beneficial. Never to be afraid to ask for information. Never be afraid to take a pen and paper in um, to write down information and also to make a list of questions that they want to ask before going into any consult so that they can ask any questions that it's easy to forget to ask those when you're in a consult with a clinician. You know, people talk about the new normal, that you have to uh, learn to find out who you are after treatment, uh, what is your new normal life. How do you explain what that means to people and how does it help them cope? Um, I, th- I think we, we look at everybody as an individual. Um, we can't know how they are feeling because we're not actually going through that situation. You know, we're not in that situation ourselves, but we can, as cancer nurse coordinators, we try and share with them experiences that we have been through with other patients to see how they have coped and how they have tried to adapt to their uh, new normal and how you know how they have successfully returned to work or or like yourself you know able to 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 speak perfectly fine now nobody would ever know any difference so we we try and look at at um how we can optimize what that patient wants to achieve now it's not always possible so in that scenario we would then be working with that patient to try and help them adapt to whatever they they are um having to face after their treatment um so so yeah it, it really is looking at the individual person their situation what is expected after treatment but also um who's out there helping the patient as well to to manage that. I'd I'd just like to add the importance of social workers um, who offer counselling services within hospitals, which can be vital. But also we have um, psycho-oncology services and I know the Cancer Council will offer counselling services as well. So I think uh, certainly Lisa and myself will assess patients and family members and and talk at length with them about referral to counselling services if that's appropriate. You know, I'd always considered myself quite a brave person, but uh, I I did find some aspects of treatment daunting and I was referred to the psychologist who was a member of the team at my hospital and I only saw her four or five times, but she gave me some ways to think about my illness and my fear of it coming back and the possibility of death. Uh, You know, she was able to talk to me about that in a comfortable and relaxed way and it it really helped. Yeah, that's... um a vital part a vital role for um some of our patients to to see these other health professionals who you know it's not for not everybody needs that that service but certainly uh, quite a number of patients do and certainly we can refer on as can any healthcare member um i'd also like to just mention here complementary therapies and complementary therapies do help patients alongside traditional treatment so things such as meditation 
mindfulness, relaxation techniques, um, they can all be very helpful. And certainly exercise, we recommend that patients do try to continue with some gentle form of exercise, whether that be a five or 10 minute walk every day during treatment, um, really what patients can tolerate. But we certainly recommend that patients don't just sit in a chair and take to their bed during treatment. We want them up and doing as much as they can of their normal lifestyle and exercise certainly plays a key part in that. And some treatment centres would have patient support groups, not all. Yeah, yes, some 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 hospitals do. Um, there's, it does vary nationwide, but there are certainly some local support groups, some hospital support groups, and support groups that we've already mentioned, such as the Cancer Council and the Beyond Five website. All very helpful. Well, just to let our listeners know that they're listening to the Beyond Five Head and Neck Cancer podcast series. And if you'd like more information about head and neck cancers, you can go to the Beyond Five website, www.beyond5.org.au, and you can find patient videos, 3D animations, and answers uh, to all the questions we're discussing now and more. But look, just in our final segment, let's just have a word for the carers, because I have to admit, I, I was lucky enough to have a loving partner during my treatment and I I don't think I would have done as well without support from my partner so how can we help the carer or partner or friend uh, that is supporting someone going through this just if you could give me you know two or three things each of what can really be important for carers to do yeah, I think carers, again, are really an essential part of the team. Um, and I would see them as, as an, you know, an extension of the patient and, and uh, important to be there whenever they can to, su- to support that patient. Uh, we certainly don't ignore carers. And it may be, we, we touched a little bit on counselling, it may be that that's required for the carer. But bef- before we get to that, we need to make sure that the carer has that opportunity as well to ask um, any questions that they might have, have about how what they can do to help. And we should invest that time with that carer so that they are able to um, help the patient to the best of their ability. And it, it might even be something with a, with a carer um, asking them how, how they are going, because the focus is very much on the patient, but we have to acknowledge that the patient possibly won't get through this as well without that extra support um, and encouraging the, the carer to to attend and be a part of, of the appointments, ask questions. If there's anything that they need, maybe maybe the, the carer is working and they need help with their employer to, to have um, letters from doctors or um, even trying to arrange appointments around their work schedule, uh, not just the patient's uh, diary, you know, just so that we can accommodate and, and make sure that they're a part of that situation. Um, Yeah, I think they're all very good points, but also practical support is really important for the patient from the carer. So if a carer is asking the question, what can I do to help, then things such as cooking, cleaning, um, housework, shopping, picking up children from school, taking children to, to school, it may be that some of our patients they actually have elderly parents of their own that need um, help and they, they might be a carer for an elderly parent. So um, the carer of the patient may need to also help out and be a carer for 
a parent, if that makes sense. Yeah. We, we talked a little bit about uh, complementary therapies for patients, but that, that might also need to be extended to carers as well, because we really need that person who is looking after the patient to be as well as they can be because quite often if they start sliding and falling off track then that has a huge effect on the patient um, both with getting through the treatment or getting to the treatment so it's important to to maintain health and well-being of, of them as a as a partnership you know as, as the the equally as important. Yes, that means they need to be eating regularly, get, getting sleep, uh, getting some exercise and getting su- emotional support as well. I, I guess uh, one thing that um, my support person got involved in was uh, taking notes about what to ask at the next uh, 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 consultation with various team members. But also, you, if you can, you almost need to keep a file of the different reports that you get and the next appointment and what the next medicine is uh, even a, a list of what medicines to take and when, uh, depending on the capacity of the carer, there's quite a lot to do. Yeah, there's tons to do. And we, again, will see our patients walking around the hospital with a big A4 file full of paperwork and then they're struggling to find the appropriate um, bit of information that you ask for. So certainly they need a good secretary. And, and again, very often if, if it's a male patient, they will call the wife or the partner the secretary and we hand everything to them. So for that carer, it is very important that they at least um, maintain a diary. We, we suggest a diary, write every single appointment down in one diary, because um, unfortunately, what can happen is that patients will receive appointments from different departments on different appointment cards or appointment slips or they'll get phone calls with appointments and it it can become very confusing. So yes, an A4 file with a diary with all the appointments is really important. Um, Also, some patients may not be able to continue to work throughout treatment or for a part of the treatment and for some time after treatment. And in some circumstances, they may need to seek financial assistance. So it's often really helpful for the patient if the carer can have some input into that and help with filling in the long, lengthy, complicated forms that seem to be so often required to be completed. You know, you. I think one of you mentioned earlier social work, and if there's one person in a hospital, if you're you're needing help, a social worker is a critical person to find who can either assist you themselves or refer you uh, to others. So let, let's hold that honour for social workers at a at a moment like this. Um, is there any other practical thing that you would uh, want to offer for? information for carers particularly before I move towards the end of our conversation? Um, I, th- I think it's probably that carers just need to access the information that's out there and not again be afraid to um, ask for help whether that be through m- myself and Julie or the the uh, other members of the MDT so that there's things that they can do really that uh, that will help themselves and help the patient. Yeah, I think one of the main things that we would advise is, and we know in this day and age with the technology that's available, if patients are going to search on the internet, which invariably they will, that they do use an appropriate 
reputable um, website. And certainly the Cancer Council or Beyond Five are good places to start. But if they're unsure, ask their team, as Lisa has said, and we will all point them in the right direction to get appropriate information and not misinformation, because there certainly is plenty of misinformation on the internet. I think that's a terribly important point and uh, you're listening at the moment to the Beyond Five Head and Neck Cancer podcast series and we would strongly recommend going to the Beyond Five website. It's the face of head and neck cancer in Australia, www.beyond5.org.au and the Beyond Five website has links to other reputable websites because you can give yourself a you know a fright and indeed be misled in in uh, difficult and dangerous ways if you don't go, as you say, to to, uh, evidence-based websites. Look, I I just want to thank you both so much. I think you've mentioned uh, Cancer Council uh, several times and the Cancer Council information and support line is 13 11 20. And we would also like to say that this uh, podcast series is providing general information only. So please talk to your own doctor or clinical team about any questions or concerns that you may have. Uh, but on your behalf as a listener, I'd like to thank Lisa Wilson, Cancer Nurse Specialist and Julie Saunders, Cancer Nurse Coordinator, who work daily with head and neck cancer patients based in Perth. Thank you so much uh, for all that you've told us. Thank you, Julie. Thank you very much, Julie. I'm Julie McCrossan, and thanks for listening.